All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Ezra. Very quickly to become a study of Nehemiah. <laughs> because in all likelihood, we will finish uh, in short order today. Um, before we get back into the text, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we left off, it looks like, according to my notes, having finished chapter 8. Does that ring a bell? Does that look right? 8, oh, maybe we didn't get all the way through 8 then? Okay. If we pick up at uh, 20, yeah, chapter 8, verse 24, that would be just fine. Um, so what's going on here, of course, is Ezra is um, leading a group back for the rebuilding of the temple. And, of course, this picks up in chapter 7. That's really where this starts. <clears throat> and as they're going, they're going to face a number of difficulties. In the first place, if you recall, this fasting and prayer for protection, this has been on account of them taking all the temple treasury back with them, but not having any guard. If we look then at chapter 8, verse 24, and simply pick up there, Then I set apart, the I here, of course, is Ezra, set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold. If you're in your study Bible, you'll see at the bottom of this column of text, uh, what is often called just the ESV notes, not the study Bible notes, but the ESV notes, very small script at the bottom of the of this column. And here you can see that a talent is about 75 pounds. So these are significant amounts. When you're talking about 650 talents, that's 650 times 75. That's the weight of silver, not including the silver vessels, etc. So you can see that this is a big operation. Verse 27 is where we left off. 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derrick. Uh, wait a minute. Derricks? Yeah, derricks. A derrick was a coin weighing about a fourth an ounce. 8.5 grams. And two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. 
Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. The study note on chapter 8, verse 30, based on current calculations of the figures given, the total weight of the silver and gold would be over 35 tons plus the weight of the vessels. So again, this is a big undertaking. I, so we shouldn't picture in our minds here 15 people with some gold in a sack on their back walking across the desert. That's not, that would give us a, a wrong view of what's going on here. This is a big operation. All right, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from, the amb and from ambushes by the way. Obviously, they're carrying an enormous amount of wealth, and they have already told the king, um, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 22, here Ezra recounts, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, quote, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So now hear this, their prayer is answered. The hand of our God, this is back in the latter half of verse 31, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with him were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, obviously representing the twelve tribes, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. All right, in regard to the burnt offerings, bulls, rams, and goats were sacrificed in multiples of 12, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. Lambs were sacrificed in multiples of Seven, And of course, you recall the orders issued by the king permitting all of this, commanding the people to help, and thus all the satraps, minor officials, governors, etc. 
are enjoined here in helping out the Hebrews. All right, that's the end of chapter 8. Now, obviously, when they get there, everything is going to go just fine, right? Now, nah, there's going to be conflict on account of sin. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll recap but at, toward the end of this text, but again, this is just a book of God's astounding grace and mercy. Obviously, there are political powers in opposition. They can't stop God's gracious will for his people. The sins of the people themselves are going to stand in opposition. Even this, God will forgive and provide means for the undoing of that sin. Now, chapter 9 has to do with intermarriage. And again, what's in view here is God forbidding the people to intermarry. This is this is has basically nothing to do with race per se and everything to do with religion. As we're going to see, intermarriage between uh, Israel, the, the Jewish people, and other nations has to do with adopting their worship policies and practices. And that's what we don't want to have happen. Um, there's a sense in which, you know, it jeopardizes the line of Christ. Yes, perhaps. I don't know how much to make of that argument. Um, but more so, this is analogous to Paul's enjoining Christians not to marry unbelievers. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? And obviously the powers of darkness are corrupting in such a way that, you know, even if you're a Christian, if you're faithful to Yahweh in the Old Testament, you're looking forward to the Messiah, you still have a sinful nature. And the powers of darkness that you marry into are going to play on that sinful nature. So you're at a disadvantage. I mean, this would be a silly way to think about it, but I think it illustrates the point, and that's all I really intend to do. You know, if you were if you were to think of yourself as a Christian as one half old sinful flesh and one half saint, new man, and you were to marry someone who is one whole darkness, one whole old man, well, what do you have? You have three parts to one. Now, that's a silly illustration, and please don't take anything from that, but I just mean to point out the disadvantage we're at. It's not even one-to-one -one when light tries to have fellowship with darkness. The darkness plays upon the darkness that is within the Christian, and it's overwhelming. And usually the case is um, not good for the Christian. They're usually drug away from the church, and or they just face a great cross and burden in their marriage. So St. Paul forbids it, and that's what we ought to see here in the forbidding of, of intermarriage. That's really what's at root. All right, chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Now, with their abominations is their idolatrous worship and, and the practices that go along with that. The study Bible here mentions sexual immorality, incense, and human sacrifice. So we've seen plenty Plenty of things like that. That's what's meant by abominations. Continuing from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Okay, so obviously this is forbidding the direct command of God. 
or forbidding, disobeying, sorry, the direct command of God. Need a sip of coffee. For some reason I've got the mid-morning sleepies that have just attacked me. Pardon me. I tried to get more sleep last night than usual, but it didn't go well. Okay. So obviously this is disobeying a direct command of God. Now, what else is going on here? Uh, we should see here arranged marriages as another part of this. So in, in this day, it's not like, well, we fell in love, you know, thus we got married. No, in this, in this day and age, it's arranged. And so these are, you know, familial bonds, sometimes economic bonds, bonds of status in, in society and culture. And then there's an adoption and a sharing of religions. We've seen here that syncretism, at least so defined as uh, hey, go ahead and worship Yahweh, just worship these other gods as well. That's really the religion, yeah, of the day. So the Israelites are exclusive in that they say, no, we're not going to participate in that. We worship the one true God. So they're sacrificing all of this by this intermarriage. They're engaging in the syncretism of the time. And this is why, why God has forbidden it. All right, last sentence of verse 2. Oh, well, we didn't go. Anyway, yeah, let's go back. Last sentence of verse 2. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, so those who should have known better, most of all, they have fallen into it, most of all. All right, what about this holy race business? Look at... Um, Look at uh, the study note on verse 2. Literally, holy seed. And then Isaiah 6.13 is referenced here. Isn't that interesting? Holy seed or offspring. Now, for, the, for those of you who uh, were, were with us for our earlier study, we were talking all about the offspring, the seed, the promise of Christ. And we were talking even in a, a way of understanding that because we'll see right here, Paul points out that that's singular. That's a reference to Jesus. And yet in the, in the, in the text itself, we see a plurality. And so there's, there's a oneness and a plurality. It's, it's Christ, it's the Messiah, and it's all who are incorporated into him. And so very interesting here that the ESV has chosen to interpret this, that the holy race has mixed itself. Rather, it would be the holy seed, the holy offspring. Very interesting. If you look at the study note as it continues, from Israel came the capital O offspring of Abraham, quote, who is Christ, end quote, with Galatians 3.16 mentioned. So this is explicitly where Paul is making his case that the referent to seed to offspring is a referent to Christ. So very interesting, from Israel came the offspring of Abraham, who is the Christ. Intermarriage with Canaanites could work at cross purposes with God's design. He had separated, I mean to say the least, he had separated the Israelites from other peoples that they might be a holy nation, a people set aside to bring to pass his eternal counsel and will. All right, I don't know. It's all fairly generically put. But they're to, set apart, they're to be set apart from all peoples in exclusive worship of the one true God and to draw peoples into that faith. 
not to be converted to the world and the gods of the world. So you see some of those dynamics, um, at, you know, the, some of those dynamics, not, not identical by any stretch. But even in the church in the West, do we stand out and demand that the people, the pagan peoples around us convert to the one true God? Or are we tempted to be converted to them as, as a church? I mean, that really is, that really is what's going on. Is the powers of darkness want to seduce Christians to intermingle, intermarry, and join themselves to, and thus become? to convert to the dark side. <laughs> but we as Christians stand as a city set on a hill, a light shining in the darkness, a reflection of our Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world, and thus we want to convert the world to the light. And again, what fellowship has light with darkness? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And you can see then this whole nexus of biblical verses, this whole way of thinking. Um, really come to bear in the time of Ezra and in our own times as well. There's probably some things, some, some cleaner lines that are going to have to be drawn. And we see those battles. We see those battles. I know as a kid, as, as a father with, with kiddos who have been in a public school and one in and one out, you see those battles and like, how, how much do you want them indoctrinated with the stuff of culture? Wouldn't it be nice if our schools just taught Reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> Some historical facts. But um, uh, that's too much to ask. So we've got, this, we've got these challenges too. And I think in a general sense we can see that we want to retain our identity as God's people and not let anything uh, dilute that. All right, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, what? Well, heard about the intermarriage taking place, and then specifically that the chief men have been engaged in this more than anyone else. That's a big problem. So as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. So an external manifestation of his, of his grief, his anger, his shame, um, in regard to what the people had done. So there's a, a tearing of the clothes. In this case, a rending of the, of the hair, a tearing of the hair of the head and of the beard, which I think is especially painful. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> All right. Verse four. Then, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. All right, so this prophetic act of Ezra ends up drawing people in. They notice, they take notice. And, you know, interesting, because as we've said, this text is a testimony of God's grace. Of course, he is patient and long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Finally, he gives the people over to exile. A few decades pass, and he calls them back. Have the people changed? Not really. 
<laughs> really. Even the remnant that comes back. I mean, so many remain because they've gone the way of the world and they've just integrated into the world and they don't want to return. They'd rather just live their lives out apart from God. Even among those called to return, are they any different? And the answer is no, not really. So what is this? Well, it's an opportunity to reflect on our own sin, on our own, on the weakness of our flesh, and to confess um, that we ourselves, like these people, are sinful and unclean by nature. To make that confession we make every Sunday morning and to dwell with God in true humility and true repentance. But then also seeing that God calls these people and God's, God gives them to, the will to come to this, to come back to the land, this will to participate in these things. And he does this all by his grace and favor, not because they've merited it or earned it or made themselves distinct from their fellow countrymen or um, at present or the people who once lived in the land before the exile. No, they're basically the same. This is a story not of man's goodness, but of God's goodness and of God's righteousness, of God's mercy toward those who deserve it not. And so we can take heart and comfort in this too, that even when we think of the ways in which we have given way to our evil culture around us rather than been faithful to God, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy. He calls us to repent, he calls us to fight against that, but there is grace and mercy. And that grace and mercy here in context is found in the temple and in the sacrifices, the blood atonement which is all a type and foreshadowing of the true and greatest of all temples, Christ. God dwelling in flesh and our access to him via his body and blood. And in that temple then cleansed for you for the forgiveness of sins, as Jesus says. And so we ourselves go to the temple that is Christ in the Lord's Supper and receive that atoning sacrifice on our behalf. All right, well... Sorry to wax sermonic on that point. How about verse 5? And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, quick note on this point, the typical posture for prayer um, at this time was standing, and you might stretch out your arms. The fact that he's kneeling, again, indicates it stands out. It stands out as a sign of his repentance and humility. Okay, listen to what he says. Here's where we start to glimpse Ezra as, as a, a type and foreshadowing of Christ. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Now, interesting. Has Ezra himself been guilty of this? No. no, but he sees himself as one with the people. Their sins are his sins. Now, that points us obviously to Christ, who takes our sins as his own. I think it also shows a very Christian attitude and an attitude incumbent upon leadership. I know, I know in a, in a much, to a much lesser degree, obviously, but in a certain sense, I know I feel this as a pastor. When people come and confess their sins or problems, my thought isn't like, well, that's, I'm, I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> you know, there's a sense in which I feel the pain too. 
I know the weakness of my own flesh, and maybe if it's not identical, I know, I know the struggle, and I know the feeling of repentance, and I know the, fe- the, the feeling of being near to despair. I also know the feeling of God's grace and mercy and the absolution for the sake of Jesus, and so that's what I grant. But there's a sense in which, as a church, we're called not to view each other's sins as, well, that's your problem, and this is your mess up, but to absorb it all and say, hey, this is us as a body. And we're going to take care of the body and we're going to be compassionate to the body. And when one member sins, we all grieve. And when one needs repentance, we all pray for that repentance. When one needs absolution, we, we grant that absolution together. You know, it's a much more wholesome way. So much of the church is plagued by individuality. So much of the church is plagued by, well, I've sinned and therefore I'm ostracized. Or you've sinned against me, therefore I cut myself off from you. It's all predicated upon a kind of individualism and a kind of self-righteousness. I think that this is just really good medicine for us to perceive of ourselves as lay people, as clergy, as whatever we may be that God has called us to, as, um, as one, as one body. So I love this prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. You know, the psalmists compare sinning to drowning, to being entangled, to, to going up. There's, um, there's language of the, uh, the flood, remnition of the flood, the waters, the sins going up over my head. There's also language, uh, remnition of Jonah, where Jonah is tossed over the, over the ship in the storm in order to calm the storm, and he goes down, down to the depths, to the abyss, the, the waters of his sins up over his head. So the flood, Jonah, Psalms, all of this kind of ties into this imagery. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, We have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Now, okay, in a sense they're slaves um, to... uh, to the Persians. They're still in captive land. They're, you know, it's not slavery in the sense of like, you know, the, the children of Israel in Egypt, not that kind of slavery, but they're, they can only do what they're permitted to do. They're in occupied land. But what does he mean? Is he reflecting on this? Yeah, he's reflecting on this, but he's allowing that to lead him deeper. I think this is a reflection on the nature of sin. It's very similar to what Jesus says. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. For we are slaves, verse 9, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery 
but has extended to us his steadfast love. Now, that's the language of covenant and the language of unilateral covenant. God's promise to be gracious. God's promise to send the seed. God's promise to not only forgive us our sins, but then break the bonds of our bondage, break the chains of our iniquity. He has extended to us his steadfast love. Now here specifying before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. All right, well, there's lots of loaded language here. Remnant language, of course, we, we can tie back to Elijah and the faithful remnant. The holy place, the temple is in view, and the idea that the holy place is what makes the people holy by way of the sacrifices, that's in view, the antidote to our sin. The setting free from our slavery, of course, harkens back to Egypt but and, and their present state, but deepens into the concept of uh, slaves to sin and iniquity. And then this beautiful promise that God has not forsaken us as he set the people free from Egypt, so he sets us free. He extends his steadfast love to us and, and did so in such a way that the kings of Persia, these pagans who, these principalities and powers of darkness, as it were, were the puppets of them, um, suddenly, suddenly are bent to help and aid us. To grant reviving, where does he say something about the eyes? Where is that? Yeah, to brighten our eyes. That's enlightenment. Um, to enlighten our eyes, to brighten our eyes. To repair the ruins, to grant protection, etc. All right, so, so interesting. Let's see what his rhetoric does. Look at verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, a land is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Okay, again, you can see here the idea of marriaging, arranged marriages, having all kinds of social and economic impact. That's clearly in view here. All right, continuing, verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Isn't that a beautiful statement? We, you know, we plead guilty every, every Lord's Day. And uh, of all sins. Recognizing that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. You know, but God is so gracious, He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. He has, as, as Ezra says here, of 
of the people who are, who are coming out of the exile, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. All right, so how's the rhetoric functioning here in the prayer? First of all, it's all of us together. Second of all, there's an understanding that the sinners who became for us were no better than they. God has been gracious and super abundantly gracious. He's done all of these things for us. And how have we repaid him? By falling into the old sins once more. And now we acknowledge that we have no claim whatsoever on God other than that he would have mercy. And then there's this sort of question being posed in the text of like, what shall we do about this? And that's that's sort of the, not the quorum Deo, not the before God prayer, but the quorum mundo, like, okay, collectively as a whole now, how shall we respond? This is our confession. This is the truth. This is what we have prayed to God. We are asking for his mercy. How then shall we act? So I think that's, you know, maybe a, at least a decent summary of the rhetoric of the prayer and what's going on here. That's kind of a beautiful prayer, one of these uh, prayers that um, in many respects I think serves as a model for our prayers of repentance. It's absolute. It's not making excuses. It's corporate. It's very, very healthy. Very, very good. Okay, before we go on to chapter 10, you can see how arbitrary the chapter breaks are kind of shoved in here later after the fact um, because the obviously the action continues on um, but before we go on to chapter 10 any thoughts you have on this prayer or the the circumstances involved any reflections that's fine if not um so when you mention when we sin we're slave to sin sorry yeah, yeah. Are we, as Christians, are we slave to sin? or? Yeah, it's a complicated question in, in a certain sense, but the simple answer is um, no. Now, if we, consider, if we consider our sinful nature, then we might answer yes. That's why it's complicated. But if we consider who our Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us, if we abide in his word, we know the truth and the truth sets us free yeah in the first place but even that truth setting us free is a little complex isn't it so well the well the simple answer is is yes if you sin you're a slave to sin but has not christ set you free oh christian he has then i'm free indeed so the best answer is we're free okay but it is a little more complicated like what does that freedom mean then well in the first place it's a freedom from the guilt of my sins and in the second place, being freed from the guilt of my sins, there's a healing that takes place in that to where I'm willing to acknowledge all the more how wrong and upside down they are. And I'm willing to start to agree with God that he is good. This is a kind of 
a metanoia, a kind of change of the mind, which is the root word of repentance, a kind of changing of the mind where it's not just, um, you know, I got caught or something like this, but it's much more, no, I recognize who the Lord is and his goodness, and I recognize that I am not that. <laughs> I want to be that. I recognize that God is good. And so, like all of this is all of this is expression of what that freedom is and sort of the complexity with which it works itself out and then we may we may in fact become free of certain sins um at least in the at least in the external obvious sense you know is it too much to ask for a christian to not go out and fornicate every weekend no that's not too much to ask right is it too much to ask a christian that he that he stopped the wild drinking parties he hosts on his at his house every no that's not too much to ask um, so there are some, there are some immediate sort of progresses we can make, and then there are longer term progresses, aren't there? Um, as we come into the fullness of maturity and as we grow into the full stature, as St. Paul says, of the man, capital M, Jesus Christ. And so that's a journey. But yeah, in principle, there's a now and not yet. Of course, when are we finally free from the flesh? When faith in Jesus triumphs and we die, and the only thing that dies is the flesh. The eye who is free does not die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus says, right? So it's a complicated kind of thing to wrestle and work through, and I've tried to do what I can here. Um, but yeah, the simple answer is we're free according to Christ, slaves according to the flesh. Please. Follow-up question to that. Uh, I've heard it said we are to put our flesh to death. Uh, mm -hmm. And what are some of the practical ways in which we do that. Yeah, yeah St. Paul says, crucify the sinful nature, or the, the old nature, I forget exactly how he puts it, with its sinful desires. And then Luther enjoins us too, what does baptism indicate? That the old man in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die. So you have the, you have the contrition and repentance. Um, what, is, what is contrition? Sorrow. Sorrow over sin. We can sorrow over our sins. Regret, lament, confess our sins. Learn from our sins. Move on. And then that repentance, that kind of metanoia, I don't want to get too technical here, but just the increasing agreeing with God that what he says is right. You know, the sinful flesh loves, loves sin and is set in opposition to the things of the Spirit. And as the Spirit puts that to death and drowns, crucifies it, what does that look like? Well, I, I'm a believer that that begins really in the mind, first and foremost. That the mind starts to agree. You start, it really, really properly, I, let me be a little less philosophical about it. It begins with faith. It begins with, it begins with acknowledging where unbelief has been, or false belief has been. Um, and the Catechism indicates this. But that, that really the root of all sin is false belief or unbelief. And so you start to, you know, it's the false belief or unbelief that this thing your flesh enjoys or this attitude your flesh enjoys is good. And you start to recognize that that's a false belief. And so that's the source. You start to attack it there. And that's a pretty, I mean, in a sense, that's a pretty easy freedom because you start to become appalled by the sin that is in opposition to God. And, and then, and then that works itself out fitfully and with, with great, uh, with great tension, you know, Romans 7, the good I want to do, I do not, the evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing, who will save me from this body of death. It's a battle. It's a fight. 
So you read um, in this respect, like if you really wanted a good, solid biblical treatment, you don't just want the wit and wisdom of Rhodey. Um, I would I would really suggest doing Romans six, seven, and eight. Fantastic chapters to read all together. You're baptized. You've been put to death with Christ. There's a now and not yet reality to that. You've been raised with him. There's a now and not yet reality. Even now you've been raised to walk in newness of life, to be led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. That's all. That's a summary of Romans 6. What's Romans 7 then? <laughs> the good that I want to do, I do not. The evil that I... So here's what that actually looks like. And then what's Romans 8? Yeah, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been elect before the foundation of the world, despite your failures at sanctification. You were saved before you even began <laughs> in Christ Jesus by God's grace. So I think Romans 6, 7, and 8 is really the medicine here if you want a nice biblical treatment of all this. Oh, Barry's got a comment, and then we'll get right back to you. Yeah, please. I was just going to add, so we, are we to look at this in the context that we are a spectator to what our flesh is doing and we're to... Uh, just kind of distance ourselves and shout it out and and drown it and and confess it. Yeah, I well I think I think in a in a fundamental way you start to view yourself as your biggest problem rather than the people around you or the world or you know this institution or that you start to view yourself as the biggest fundamental problem. You make enemies with yourself with the flesh that is within you and you you attack it, you crucify it, you drown it. Um you you don't become a spectator. Um you seek to put it to death. It, it requires a great deal because the flesh is also deceitful, and so it's always constantly trying to deceive us. And so a lot of that is, is just trying to work through the self-deceit and make a good confession and start to live according to that confession. And where the flesh causes you to contradict your values as a Christian, you simply confess that to the Lord and acknowledge that as part of the the sickness of the flesh, and then you fight it. You know? um, and I, I think, too, that the truth is that Christianity is a, isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a long, long, long wrestling match and war and battle. And while there may be some very swift victories, there may be a time where there's a landslide and a lot of ground is recovered, there's other times where the truth is the Christian life is a grind. That's like... Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps back, one step forward. It's just a grind. I mean, even look at Paul. The good I want to do, I do not. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. What is that except for like one step forward, two steps back? It's, it's a grind. And that's okay. That's okay. That's why God gives us the sacraments. That's why we're here. That's the maturation process. That's the endurance um, of faith. That's actually faith. That's like the treadmill of faith. You know, it just keeps running. Faith, I can't do it, I can't do it. Yeah, you can, and you can endure. Um, faith grows its cardio, <laughs> and it can endure a lot more than it previously could. Yeah, I think there's lots of things like that. So, I, no, I wouldn't describe it as spectating um, the flesh, but, you know, actively being opposed to it. First and foremost, in terms of one's beliefs, ridding oneself of false beliefs, and then letting that manifest itself attitudinally, behaviorally, and in word and deed, those kinds of things. We always have that pair, thought, word, and deed. It really starts as a thought. And if you can stop it there, that's good. 
Don't let it become a word. <laughs> and don't let it become a deed. All right, please. Well, I was thinking when you were talking about being, you know, in essence, unequally yoked, we're kind of, and, and the threat that comes from Adam and Eve when, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done what Eve did. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's sin that I've done and would do that I fight against. And when I win that, there's another one, you know. There's always going to be something else. And the problem for us now is even when we are equally out, yeah. is that we live in a world that's redefining goodness. Mm -hmm. You know, God would not say that you can't do that. Mm -hmm. God would not say that you can't marry yeah. your own sex. God would not want that for you. Yeah. Um, don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to live your own truth? <laughs> and it's going to keep going on and on and on. So it's going to be a continual battle. Mm -hmm. And when we fight, it, I don't think we can divorce ourselves from sin. I mean, I try, yeah, but I don't think we can. I well, just, exactly. Our yeah. salvation is everything. I mean, it's so freeing to realize that we can't actually be righteous the way we want to be. Yeah. We can't be righteous in a way that would ever justify us before God. But how freeing that is that God has justified us in Christ, and so. Our own righteousness, our own ability to pull it off, our own ability to be victorious over our flesh and sin. That's not what gets us into heaven. That's not what is our standing before God. When God looks down on you, he's not like, okay, well, let's see. Rody was four for ten today. Not a very good day. <laughs> That's not, no, God sees us in his son. And he sees us as sons. And he sees us baptized and washed and clothed in Christ. And how freeing that is. Now, the flesh, of course, wants to grab a hold of that. And what's the flesh want to do with the gospel? Use it in service of sin. And so the flesh wants to say, yeah, well, since God loves you and you can't out sin his grace, then why not just let go, relax, ease into your sinful self, be one with the world around you. God's gracious, he forgives. Is that right? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And so the world, the devil is constantly saying, relax, stop fighting yourself. Be who you are. Self-actualize. Be comfortable in your own skin. Ah, that's like, roll around in the pig slop. Eat their pods. Be filled and satiated with the food of pigs. Like, gross and no thank you. Um, but the flip side is, is like, you know, I'm not, I'm not received by the Lord as, a, as his son because I get myself all cleaned up. And um, because I get myself all ready to be called his son again and be deserving. No, no, that's not true either. So we're constantly balancing between these two opposites. We don't justify ourselves. It's not our righteousness that avails before God. It's purely God's grace, his fatherly love, where he clothes us in Christ, cleanses us in his blood, puts sandals on our feet and the family ring on our finger. But we don't allow that to then be abused by the flesh into leading us into indifference. So what does that mean? That means that this life is a, this is the language St. Paul uses, a battle, a race, a wrestling match, a boxing match. It is competition. It's a constant fight and struggle. Well, Here's what you're exchanging, if we just allow it to be a little crass. 
Would you rather fight now for these seventy, or if by reason of strength eighty years, and have an eternity of rest, or would you rather rest now and have an eternity of strife? Because <laughs> that's really what's at stake. Um, we are we are striving right now to enter that narrow gate. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's a marathon and not a sprint. It's demoralizing. It's humbling. It's filled with God's grace and gifts and realizations. And a deepening understanding of who he is and what his grace and mercy and love are in Christ Jesus. So, but it's a wrestle until we die and then we rest. And what's the flip side? What's the opposite? Rest now. Be who you are now. Stop the inner strife. Actualize. Be yourself. Be whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. And what, and then viewed from this angle. Okay. So you rested for your 70 or if by reason of strength 80 years. And now what? Now you have an eternity of regret. That if I had striven for those, that brief little period of earthly life, I would now be resting for eternity. But because I rested for that brief little period, now I'm striving for all eternity. I'm not resting. I'm in internal conflict and tumult. And there are all the things of which our Lord speaks and warns about of those who depart from, from the narrow path. Okay, so, I don't know, those are some thoughts and reflections as we, as we consider all this. The Christian life's hard. It's hard. I mean, there's some paradoxes there. In one sense, it's perfectly easy to be saved, isn't it? Because you're saved by grace through faith, apart from works. In one sense, it's impossibly difficult to be saved. Why? Because the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh are all arrayed against you in a life and death fight, and they want to drag you into death. Now, so there's all kinds of paradoxes when we talk about the Christian life. Um, profoundly easy, the easiest thing in the world. Profoundly difficult, the hardest thing in the world. And I think, I think then, um, going back to Ezra, what we see here is just a beautiful statement of, um, we are the people of God together. We hold each other accountable, but not in such a way that we judge one another, such a way that we perceive one another's weaknesses as our own, and we confess them together, and we seek God's mercy. And I love, too, here, this prayer. He doesn't presume upon God's mercy. He states God's mercies as of old in very typical biblical form uh, and, and the form of all the Psalms. Restating God's mercy of old does what? indicates that he might be merciful anew and now. And so, um, so so Ezra using that template here to great effect, restating all the mercies that God has given. You know, I'm looking at uh, verses maybe 7 through 9 in particular there and um, saying maybe he will be mercy on us, merciful on us yet once, once again, even though we've intermarried here and betrayed his commandments. All right, let's um, jump into chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, we probably don't do enough physical manifestation of our repentance. There's torn clothes, there's pulled hair, there's kneeling, there's casting oneself down, there's weeping, there's a physical manifestation of the internal grief. 
casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. So they're so moved by his, by this prophet and his display of penitence that they themselves are penitent. Verse 2, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Okay, well, if you drop down, if you happen to be in a Lutheran study Bible on page 736, if you drop down to the footnotes, not before you get to verse 5, but just the preceding one, and the very top lines there of the footnotes on page 736. Um, New Testament believers are under no such obligation or command to divorce an unbelieving spouse. Uh, see 1 Corinthians 7. So um, this is not um, pertinent to us as Christians per se, but this is the solution they came up with. These are illegal marriages that we engaged in, unlawful marriages contrary to the command of God, um, they're not legal in the, in the right-hand kingdom or left-hand kingdom sense. They're not legal, period. We recognize them as illegitimate, therefore we are setting them aside. And so that was, uh, that was viewed as the right manifestation of, res of repentance uh, in this context. The study note on verse 3 says, uh, Shechaniah's harsh proposal to stop the problem immediately, that is to put away all these wives. In contrast with most divorce situations today, these marriages were illegal from the start. I mean, it's an interesting kind of casuistry, casuistry question. Um, maybe a parallel would sort of be like this. What if a I shouldn't pick on this, but I'm going to. You know, what if a, what if a man came to our congregation from Utah? Here I am with my seven wives. What should we do? Uh, I want to be baptized. I'm a Christian. I believe I want to be baptized and commune and join your church. Okay. All right. So what's this look like? Well, what would you say? Just keep all of your wives? I don't know. Yeah. Who did you marry first? The other ones are illegitimate. Now maybe we need to maybe we need to handle that in a particular way, but you're married and the others are illegitimate. That would be one take on that casuistry question. So um maybe that would be something similar uh in a way that we could see this making sense. It's not to say you wouldn't care for the women and the children. You certainly would. Um but there's an acknowledgement of, of what is and, and what was contracted illegally or contrary to God's law. All right, verse 6. 
Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehona, Jehonahan, I don't know, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, fasting, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So they're not messing around. This is a, are you in or are you out moment. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the, on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. A kind of natural baptism taking place here. <laughs> and Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. Well, this is quite the Holy Spirit-inspired moment, isn't it? A moment of repentance. Continuing, this is what the people answer with a loud voice. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. In other words, this is going to take some time to untangle. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And that's the end of their quote. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jahaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shab Shabbethai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. All right, so there's kind of a committee that's formed here in order to um, find godly resolution to all of this. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. All right, so what do you have at the end here? You have kind of a baptism, <laughs> baptismal imagery, a return to baptism, a confession of sins, and in the midst of a rainstorm, all the people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, confess their sins. They set about doing this. Obviously, there's going to be a process involved here. They acknowledge that. They do that. Now, Ezra ends in a strange way, and I know we're at time, but I'm going to spend one more minute just bringing it to a close. It'll be Nehemiah next week. Verse 18, now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Okay, They pledged themselves to put away their wives, I skipped to verse 9, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt. Now, of their sons, 
and then you see a long, long, long list. All the way to verse 44, all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Okay, um, make of that list what you will, but it certainly underlines the severity of the sin, and uh, these names are recorded in this respect. Um, I mean, in one sense, I think you can look at this. Um, all of the, all of, they had all uh, intermarried, they had all broken the covenant. And yet, these illegal marriages are identified and ended, so this becomes not a list of sinners, but a list of the repentant. And a list of those who uh, went through earthly trouble and strife in order to receive heavenly gain, and God's grace and mercy. So, um, that's a, an interesting ending. An interesting ending to a biblical text that is... You know, largely, largely all about God's grace. Well, maybe I'll say a few more things about uh, Ezra next week um, as we transition then into Nehemiah. The events of Nehemiah take place about 12 years after these events that, have, that we've just uh, looked at. So um, we'll have a bit of continuity here, and Nehemiah will be up against um, some similar things. So, All right, the Lord be with you.